Good morning, Cross Point. Yeah, there we go. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, and a special welcome. I did notice Carlos and Katie, our newlyweds, just came in. So excited for them. So kids, you can be released uh, to your classes, and then everybody else who's here, if you will turn with me to Mark chapter 15, we're going to be beginning in uh, verse 21 this morning. If you have a script on page 98 uh, to make it easier. Now, in January of this year, the very first Sunday of this year, we began this series through the Gospel of Mark to walk with Jesus together. That first sermon was called The Journey Begins. And I have to say that for me personally, I have so enjoyed studying and being able to preach through the Gospel of Mark. It's been comforting. It's been convicting for me personally, and I pray that it's been a blessing for you as well. And, and there's part of me that today there's a little bit of sadness because this is going to be my last sermon in the series. My wife and I are heading out of town to go see family up north, and so next week you're going to get to hear from Justin, and then the week after that from AD. So I'm so thankful for these men uh, and being able to hear from them. But there's kind of sadness for me today of realizing like, this is the last of this series today, and, and as we conclude in today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus, the light of the world, the one that we've been walking with, the one that we've been following together is going to be swallowed up in the darkness of death as he is crucified on the cross and breathes his last breath. And as I've read and I've reread this passage this morning, and I prayed, what does God have for us this morning? There was this increasing concern that I felt in my heart for us. And it's this, that sometimes we are blinded to the wonder and awe of God's truth because it's familiar. Because we grow so used to it that sometimes we, we grow so comfort so comfortable, so familiar with the beauty that surrounds us that we no longer step back and say, isn't this amazing? Isn't this wonderful? It it happens in small ways, doesn't it? Like, think about this morning when you woke up, when, when you turned on the light to your bathroom, when you turned on the faucet to brush your teeth or take a shower, was there any thought or wonder that went through your head? Like, for me, our bedroom's on the second story of the house. Like, water defied gravity, rose from the ground, and came out of the faucet. Right? It was cold, and I can turn the handle, and it gets hot. That's amazing. Now, there's part of this that that I, I stand in wonder of how normal it is. That we can just press a button and electricity comes on because for numerous years, my wife and I lived in a place where we did not have running water or electricity. You'll see pictures up on the screen that for us, our water was pots in the back of our house. I learned to make electricity because we had none with some solar panels, truck batteries, and an inverter. And I only started one fire. The kids were fairly traumatized by this, but you learn there's gauges to wires and that sort of thing. Honest, I've kind of grown used to it now. It's been 10, 11 years since we lived in that setting. I I don't even hit the light switch anymore. I tell Siri to turn on my office lights and they come on. 
That's how my home is wired. And I get frustrated when she doesn't hear me right and it's delayed. That's kind of, I take long, hot showers and I don't even think about it anymore because I've grown used to it. Uh, electricity, water's so plentiful that I just water the lawn. Electricity's so plentiful that the kids don't even bother turning off the lights, right? It's just constant. It's all the time and, and we grow used to it. The same thing is true for what we're going to look at today. We lose a sense of awe and wonder that the things that I'm going to say this morning, maybe you've heard before. But I want you to imagine what life was like before this day that we're going to read about. Now, I want you to imagine standing in complete and utter darkness. Right? So dark that if you were to stretch out your hand in front of you, you wouldn't even be able to see it. Such a, a darkness that it feels like a weighted blanket that is pulling you into some unseen abyss. And you cry out. You, you reach out for anything to grab hold of something to get a sense of where you're at. But, but you can't feel anything. You're wandering in the dark and you cry out for God. And you know He's present. And yet it's as though He's standing on the other side of a wall. He's a holy, consuming fire. And to enter His presence, it would be like paper hearts in the midst of a raging fire. We would be absolutely consumed. And so we have to stay our distance. But we remain in the dark and we cry out. This was our reality until this moment that we will read of today. This is when everything changed. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them a light has shone. This is the moment that we will read about today. Let's pray and then dive into the text. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning. Lord, as we open your word, I pray that we feel both the weight of the truth and, and the freedom and the joy that it brings. Lord, would you lead the affections of our heart to rejoice and stand in wonder and in awe to what is proclaimed today. Lord, break us free from the familiar and, and from our complacency and from what we think we understand, Lord. Revive us. Fan the flame in our hearts to burn for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen. So on page 98, Mark 15, beginning in verse 21, as we read through this passage, I've been reminded this week that last Sunday in, in the service, there was a, a young lady who was listening, and she was with her parents, and during the lunch, she had a question for me. And it was, so what's the evidence? What's the evidence? It's a great question. 
right? It's a phenomenal question to consider, to ask. And as I read this passage this week, what I realized is is this is exactly what Mark is doing. The way that this passage is written, he is telling us not just the events that occurred, not just what happened, but he's establishing its truthfulness. He's establishing the evidence that what he is saying is true. And so look with me at the very beginning. Jesus has been tried by the religious leaders, tried by Pilate. He's been beaten. He's then been flogged. And now he was being led away to be crucified in verse 20. And then in verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Here it is. If you remember, last week and what we talked about in being scourged of the the leather bounds with lead and with bone tearing the flesh from the back ripping muscle in from tendon and bone that so that Jesus didn't even have the physical strength to carry the beam of the cross as they led him to be crucified and so they call out a man Simon who's actually from eastern Libya in North Africa is where this is but Mark doesn't stop there he doesn't just say Simon from, from Libya. He also says he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. Here's why I say that Mark isn't just telling us the event, but he's giving us the evidence because in Romans 16, the apostle Paul refers to Rufus, who's a leader in the church in Rome. Do you remember where Mark is when he's writing this? He's in Rome. He's writing to Christians in Rome. He's like, look, go talk to Rufus. Go talk to the elder. It was his dad who helped Jesus carry the cross. If you have questions about what happened, go ask him. Go talk with him. This was someone who was there, who was with them. And then Mark, he lists out these events. And it's kind of strange because it almost reads like bullet points, the events. He doesn't go into a whole bunch of detail around them. He says, okay, he was crucified, and then this happened, and then this happened. But what he's doing, I believe, is if you read these and you take them from just statements and almost make them bullet points, you're going to see that each and every one of them lines up with a prophecy that was spoken hundreds of years before Christ. Mark is giving us the evidence of these events. He's not just telling us what happened. He's rooting it in something that is historically true. Think back to the end of, or last week, Mark 15, verses 15 through 20, Jesus on trial, him being beaten, spit on, beard ripped out of his face, mocked, all of that. And then you consider that 700 years before those events took place, the prophet Isaiah wrote, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid my face not from the disgrace and the spitting. 700 years. In verse 23, and and as Jesus was led to the place of Golgotha where he would be crucified, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh and he did not take it. And 900 years before that event happened, the psalmist wrote, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink and they crucified him. In verse 24, 900 years before the event Psalm 22 says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. 
And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. In verse 24, 900 years before it took place, the psalmist wrote, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. 700 years before that took place, the prophet Isaiah wrote, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors, yet he bore the sin for many. And those who passed by, they they derided him. King of the Jews, it said on the thing, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 900 years prior, the psalmist wrote, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. And then in verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, this would be noon, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. He has been on the cross for three hours as these have taken place. And now it's noon. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would be 3 p.m. So from noon to 3 p.m., darkness covered the earth. 750 years before that event took place, Amos wrote, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning. It was Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, 750 years before it took place. Like if we think about those numbers, like if we think about what that means, and here's the thing, for centuries, for centuries, people looked at these and they said, it's not true. See, Christians, it's too specific. It's too exact. It can't be trusted. Christians added this into the text so it seemed like Jesus was the Messiah, but it wasn't really there to begin with, or else there's no way it would be that exact. There's no way it would be that specific. It's too much detail. They're obviously lying. That was until an afternoon at the end of 1946 when two young shepherd boys got bored watching the family goats and they do what boys do they picked up stones and started to throw them at things and so they were throwing some stones into a cave and it was all fun and games until they heard something break and then it was like uh oh what they didn't realize is they had stumbled on what has been called the greatest archaeological find in the 20th century the dead sea scrolls it contains every Old Testament book, except for one, that predate the time of Christ. So these texts that people say, no, it was added after Jesus, it was added after him, has been found predating Christ, showing that what 
we have in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, these prophecies are true. Mark is laying out for us the evidence. He's laying out for us what it means. That these are not just events, but they're events that are rooted in something. He's saying, yes, this historically happened. In the Old Testament, over and over and over again, prophesied specifically that these things would happen. And it wasn't only Jesus who's quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus himself, in his final words, is quoting from Psalm 22, uh, verse 1, when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people who heard that, him crying out, Eloi, Eloi, thought he was saying, Elahu, Eliyahu, which is Elijah. And so it says that as they were listening, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah, and some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed to give him something to drink. They were trying to just prolong his life a little more. Wait, we want to see what happens. Keep him alive just a little bit longer. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The mockery continued until the moment Jesus gave up his spirit. John 19 verse 30 tells us that when Jesus had received that sour wine, in that loud uttered cry, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No one took his life, but as the good shepherd, he laid it down on our behalf. This is what happened. This is historically what occurred, but what does it mean? Why does it matter? What does it mean? Like, why did Jesus say, why have you forsaken me? What was finished? What was accomplished on the cross? What does all of it mean? And I want us to see in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn. It was torn in two from top to bottom. Here's what I want you to understand. When the Jews were building the temple, God said that his presence was going to dwell in the temple. But in the innermost part of the temple was going to be the most holy place. And so God instructed them in Exodus 31 to make a veil, to make a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. And the veil would separate the people who were in the, the holy place from the most holy, from the presence of God. It was this veil that was built. And so this is what I want you to do. If you'll turn around and look at this air wall, I want you to envision with me. It's helpful for me to kind of have a visual representation. This veil is not a curtain that you put on your window. Okay, this veil would have been about the width of what this center part of the air wall is, about 30 feet. Now, if you take this air wall and you multiply it four times, that would have been the height 
Those are about 15 feet. I measured them this morning. It was 60 feet tall, this veil. It was made of 72 panels. The thickness of this veil was greater than the thickness of these air walls. It was about one and a half times that thickness. So when you leave today, take a look at this. This is what the veil was. This is what it meant. This is God was on that side and you were on this side. And there was a wall of separation. This was so if you fall into it, you're not getting through. You were not allowed to go in except for one day each year. One man, one man from the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a Jew, once in his lifetime, could go beyond. And so in the darkness we cry out, but God's presence is there and we are here in our need. And once a year, one person could go from this side to that side. But it wasn't an easy thing and and it was fearful of what would happen because they would start the day to come to church, to say to be in the presence of God, to go to the temple. He would wake up that morning and take a ritual bath and then put on these special garments, these golden garments to make his way to the temple. And then he would take off those garments and he would take another ritual bath. And then he would take a third ritual bath before putting on these special linen garments. They tied, tradition says, a scarlet rope to his foot and bells around his waist because if he went into the presence of God and dropped dead because he did something wrong, nobody dare go into the presence of God lest they also die. And so that way they could pull out his dead body. At the end of the day, he would have taken 10 ritual baths and never be permitted to enter into the most holy place again. Once in his life. And while in there, he would present a vessel of blood, a sacrifice, a substitute that paid the penalty for the sins of the nation. He would burn, bring incense representing the prayers of a people seeking forgiveness. This was the only day that it was allowed to enter was what's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement where the priest would represent a nation before God seeking forgiveness of the nation's sins. And over and over again, year after year, this would take place. Until this moment. That was the only reality that had been known since the Garden of Eden. Since Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden and there was separation between the holy, consuming fire of God and man. A raging fire that we would not dare with paper-thin hearts even consider approaching and entering into His presence. And then... As Jesus hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, it is finished. And gave up his life and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What did Jesus do? When he says it is finished, what did he finish? Do you remember back when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
Do you remember what he prayed and what we talked about then when Jesus says, Lord, if you will, allow this cup to pass from me, but not my will, but yours. And Jesus was crying because he knew and he was beginning to taste what it would mean for him to be separated from the presence of God, a father who had only looked at him and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Look at him. Behold, my son would turn his face away as Jesus drank the cup, the cup of God's wrath that I read then in Ezekiel 23 when it says, thus says the Lord God, you shall drink the cup that is deep and large, a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breast for I have spoken, declares the Lord. When Jesus says it is finished, It is as though he took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it in full. The wrath that our sins deserved. That our rebellion deserved. Jesus drank that in full. He was forsaken that you would be accepted. He was crushed for your sin. He was pierced and he was beaten that you might know peace. His wounds have purchased your spiritual healing. His sacrificial blood has the power to bind up your broken heart. And in a loud cry, when he says, it is finished, he declared our freedom from spiritual darkness. That was his cry of freedom on our behalf. It's finished. It's done. And the veil was torn. Our freedom has been purchased. His cries purchased our comfort. His death gave us beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. A banner of praise instead of the weight of despair. Because of Jesus You no longer have paper hearts before a consuming fire of God. You are called sons and daughters, and your heavenly Father is the King. This is the truth that was declared on that day. It was not like that before. This is the awe and wonder I want us to feel this morning. This is what happened This is what the outcome was. This changes everything. There's so many implications of this passage. So many that I think would be worthwhile to consider and to talk about. There's four that I want to highlight this morning. I just want us to consider, okay, what does this mean? How do I help my heart feel the weight and the joy and the awe and the wonder of this truth? The first one is this. The presence of God indwells all Christians. So think about this for a moment. Before this day, God's presence was on that side of the wall and we were on this side. Never to enter His presence right? That is how it was. But now the presence of God, the presence of God that was in the Holy of Holies indwells each and every follower of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you know, don't you know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? 
can we think about that for a moment? What a priest could only enter once in his life. Ten ritual baths, the special clothes, the presence of God now indwells each and every believer. That's what it means for the veil to be torn. That the Spirit of God no longer inhabits buildings made by the hands of men, but in the creation that reflects the image of God, the Spirit of God dwells to those who follow Christ. This is what is true because when Jesus says it is finished and breathed his last, the veil was torn. And here's the amazing thing each and every one of us have equal access. To God. Like, here's what hit me this week. I would have never known the presence of God if it were not for this truth. I'm not a Jew. I'm not from the tribe of Levi. I would have never known the, the comfort, the power of the presence of God if it were not for this truth. Think about this. As I was talking to my wife, male or female, it doesn't matter. Jew, non-Jew, doesn't matter. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, doesn't matter. The veil was torn. We all have access to the presence of God for all people. Galatians 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. Can anybody here claim that, yes, I am a man from the, from the tribe of Levi? I would have had a right, maybe, one point in my life after lots of ritual baths and special clothings, maybe that would have been me. I'm imagining none of us, not a single one of us here, would have known or tasted the presence of God if it were not for this truth. Do our hearts have any awe or wonder in them that Christ would allow His Spirit, His presence to dwell in us. When I couldn't even have entered His presence before, this is what this passage is declaring to us today. And here's the thing. No human priest stands between you and God. See, once a year, a priest would represent you, your sin before God, and would enter on your behalf chapter 7 tells us Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant, this better relationship with God. Not the covenant where God's on that side and we're on this side. The covenant that says the veil is torn and we enter by the blood of Jesus. That covenant is a better covenant that is guaranteed by Jesus Christ. Because see, before, there were many priests under the old system. Because death, the priest would die. And you need new priests because every year you need a new priest to enter in on your behalf. And so it was always someone new, someone else standing between you and God to intercede on your behalf. 
But because Jesus lives forever, it says in Hebrews 7, His priesthood lasts forever. And He is able once and forever to save those who come to God through Him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Do you see the joy? That means that you can enter, be in the presence of God. His presence, Spirit, indwelling every believer. Because Christ is the one who intercedes. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor to enter into His presence. Christ is the great high priest. He is the one who intercedes on our behalf. And what this means, because He is the one who intercedes, it then calls us to we don't need to approach with fear and trembling, but it calls us then to freely enter with boldness and freedom to come into the presence of God. This same presence that on the other side of the wall people tied a rope in case you died so they could pull out your dead body. Now it says freely enter it. This is what changed at this moment on this day. That's how it was, but that is no longer how it is. Again, in Hebrews, it says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, we have a great high priest who has entered heaven. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. Because this high priest of ours, this high priest who intercedes, this high priest who tore the veil in two, who opened up for all peoples, to know and enter into the presence of God. He knows our weaknesses. He understands them. He's faced all the same testings and temptations that you do. But He was without sin. So, in Hebrews 4.16, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Do you feel it? How different that is? Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there, there you will receive His mercy. And we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Entering into the raging, consuming fire of God's holiness that took fear and trembling and special clothes and ritual baths for one day out of the year. It says, now enter it boldly, freely, whenever you want, walking down the street, in the shower, standing on the beach, like out on a boat in the lake, enter into His presence, come boldly before the throne, and you're going to receive mercy. Mercy. No ritual baths, no special closing, any time, day or night. See, you don't need the special linen cloths to enter into His presence because we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. This is what it says. That's why we can enter freely and boldly 
because we are clothed not in what we can wash our hands and feet in or what kind of clothes we wear. None of that matters. Enter in shorts and a t-shirt. Because ultimately, you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. You are purified, not by how you've cleaned your hands and whether it was the right kind of soap or not, or the right kind of water. You are cleansed because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because He declares you clean. And so you can enter freely without fear, and you can receive mercy instead of judgment because Jesus drank in full the cup of wrath we deserved. This is the gospel, right? I mean, this is what should cause our hearts to wonder and marvel at what God has done when He says it is finished and the veil was torn that we would receive mercy and grace. I want to encourage you this morning that if you are a follower of Christ, if you say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, I believe what Mark says here is true and Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. I want to encourage you to pray today, this week, in the coming weeks that God would renew your heart, would renew your sense of wonder and awe. This is what I've been convicted of this week. Like I can think like, yes, the Holy Spirit, He indwells all believers. I can talk about these things in theological terms, but it's taken this week and this meditation to remember this isn't how it always was. To be reminded that I would not have ever known the presence of God if it were not for this truth. Like, this should cultivate in my heart and what I pray and what I long for is that God would bend my heart to joy and wonder and awe into who He is and what He's done. That, that we wouldn't just understand these things intellectually. That you could recite for me the things that happened when Jesus was crucified. But that you would feel them. That your heart and your affections would be transformed by them. Because there's a weight to these truths. There's a joy to these truths. And my heart doesn't always feel it. Because sometimes I just grow familiar with it. Because I can talk about it and think about it and read about it. But I need my heart once again to be awakened that it was not always this way. That it came at a cost and Christ paid it. In the joy and wonder and beauty I experience today, is all because of Christ. That our hearts then would rejoice. Like I often pray, Lord, incline my heart as the psalmist prayed. To, to feel the beauty, to know the wonder, to know the all. Lord, bend my heart toward you. Would you pray that? If you are a follower of Christ, would you pray that this week and ask that God would continually be transforming and renewing your heart to feel these glorious truths and to live in response to them?
to those who have not yet trusted in Jesus. This next verse in Mark stands out like a neon sign, like a spotlight. This book ends, the, the first verse in the Gospel of Mark, to this incredible proclamation that follows in verse 39. That after Jesus breathed his last, it said, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, truly, this man is the Son of God. He was the first to believe. And here's what's so shocking about this. The religious leaders didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. The whole gospel of Mark from verse 1, do you remember what it said? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That set the trajectory for the entire book. This is it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then it's, who is this Jesus? What does it mean for him to be the Messiah leading up to the climax in this final week? Was all this thing, do they understand that Jesus is the Son of God? They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. He's put on trial. The words are in their mouth, but they don't understand. Until this moment, Jesus breathes his last breath in the centurion of all people. A Roman soldier in charge of a thousand men is the first to believe. Think of the encouragement that this would be for believers in Rome. A Roman soldier, the first to believe truly this man was the Son of God. What do you believe this morning? Romans 10 says that because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How else could I close this sermon than to call, implore, invite you if you have not yet trusted in Jesus? Trust in him. These events are not just stories. They are historical events rooted in evidence. Trust in Him. Believe in your heart that who God says He is, He actually is. What Jesus said He would do, He did. And when the veil was torn and Jesus says it is finished, it was finished. Do you believe this in your heart this morning? If so, Confess with your mouth. I think there's a couple ways I want us to think about that this morning. One is when I'm done praying, I'm going to step off the stage and I'm going to be over here on the side. And I want you to to invite you that if God is giving you the faith to believe in Christ, come and talk with me. Let us pray together as you Proclaim out loud that you are a follower of Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus and you have not yet been baptized, I want to call you to baptism. Baptism is a public proclamation that what you have believed in your heart, you are now demonstrating for a community 
to rejoice with you in. It is a public proclamation. It is confessing with your mouth what is true. That is something that we do once after belief. But then there is the ongoing proclamation that we share together in a community. The Lord's table. That whenever you gather together, it says, when you do this in remembrance of My name, you proclaim the Lord's return. You proclaim what Jesus has done in His death, burial, and resurrection in His return. We proclaim this together. It is a confession with our mouth that we participate in week in and week out. And so I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to lead us then in a time of communion. And if God is moving on your heart, please come and talk to me to the side after the service. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Lord, in amazement that that we can celebrate that your presence would indwell us. Lord, a presence that no one even dared enter is now so freely offered that we can move towards you with boldness, not because we are clean or perfect, but because you clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus, that you paid, you took the consuming fire of God's wrath on our behalf so that we are free. Lord, help our hearts to feel the weight and joy and freedom. The implications of this truth that our hearts would continue to marinate in them and give us the thoughts and joys and wonder of this glorious truth. Lord, to those who are seeking, to those who have questions, to those who are struggling with doubts, Lord, would you give the gift of faith to believe in their hearts, Lord? Would you give them the courage this morning to confess with their mouth? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.